Well, thank you, uh, Glenn. Thanks for that scripture reading that we've looked at today in, in the message uh, today. We're going to look at two different passages of scripture. Revelation chapter 19, we'll get there a little later. And then earlier in the message, we're going to be looking at some verses from 1 Corinthians 7 uh, as well. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to some of those just as we look to those along the way. Over the past few weeks... Um, we have really been enriched through messages from Pastor Richard and from Pastor Nathan. So thank you to both of you for the words that you have given to us. And uh, we have been reminded that for many in our church, you have a high calling, a high calling of marriage. And many of you also have a high calling of parenting. And the Bible honors marriage, but I'd like to remind you that the Bible also gives an equal or arguably a higher place to the single life. Can that be? I'd like to reflect with you on a place in God's family, a place for all. Um, Some time ago, I read an article uh, by a 30-something Canadian single, and she wrote this. She said, if you are in a relationship, she said, February can be one of the most romantic months of the year, but if you're not, this month can serve as a cruel reminder that you are all alone. And uh, I I just want to be able to think about God's place for everyone here in this church. And uh, as I think of the message that I'm going to give, I'm grateful that we can have a conversation with a couple of friends. And so we're going to implement that also as a part of the, the sermon today, as Julie and Carol are going to share some of their stories. There are many who are unmarried in our church. And I've tried to have some conversations with unmarried people leading up to this message. And... Um, to explore this question, are there times when you do not feel like you are a part of our church because you are single? And I have discovered that I have some listening and I have some learning to do. You know, in our church, we can talk rather freely about the challenges of marriage. And couples did that quite well, that we can kind of just say, yeah, there are times when we're married, but it's just hard. And then other times, we can talk about the challenges of parenting. You know that. Couples can talk on and on and on about the problems with their children, or they'll talk about the terrible twos, or those trying teenagers. But it just gets a little more personal and it gets a little harder for those who are unmarried to talk about the challenges of being single. Many years ago, I want to remind you that in the church, it was the unmarried people that had all the glamour. For the first 1,500 years of the church, singleness was considered the very best way to live, and the best way to serve Christ. Churches were actually set up so that those who lived a celibate life 
sat at the front of the church and had a place of prominence. And then those who were married were actually pushed to the back and had to sit at the back of the church. Students of scripture from centuries gone by read 1 Corinthians 7.1, that verse where it says, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. However delicately this wording is put here in the King James Version, in the life of the early church, to be unmarried was considered to be a holier thing. Perhaps today it's the married life that has the glamour. And it seems the best choice to make, to be married. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, takes on both of those views. And he contradicts them both firmly. Whether you are married or whether you are single, it is a matter of, and Paul writes, gift. 1 Corinthians 7.7, 7, as Paul talks about the married or the unmarried life, he says this, I wish that all of you were as I am. Paul writes this as a single man. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, and another has that. Really? Being married and unmarried are both gifts? And what if I don't want the gift that I have? Can I trade in my gift for another one? And furthermore, how do I know if I have this gift? And add to this the complication that there are so many different kinds of singleness. Let me just list some of them that I have thought of. Being unmarried and committed to not pursuing a dating relationship or marriage is a certain kind of singleness. Being unmarried and hoping for a relationship is a certain kind of singleness. Being unmarried and in a dating relationship is a certain kind of singleness. Being a widow and knowing this kind of grief and loss is a certain kind of singleness. Being divorced and knowing this kind of grief and loss is a certain kind of singleness. Being drawn to an intimate relationship outside of traditional marriage and saying no to this because of your convictions is a certain kind of singleness. And being a single parent is a certain kind of singleness. There are lots of questions that arise from 1 Corinthians 7 as Paul tackles this in a very challenging chapter of Scripture as he tackles the married life, the single life, and the divorced. But here is one truth that we can draw from verse 7. We read that verse already. If we are single, we have the gift of singleness for now. And if we are married, we have the gift of marriage for now. Some of you have made an agreement with God. You're saying, this is what I feel like. I am called to celibacy for a longer term and maybe the rest of my life. And some of you are saying, I am single now, but I have a desire to be married. And both of these are good things. 
And in verse 35, whether we are married or single, what is critical is that we may live in a way of life of undivided devotion to the Lord. That's verse 35 in that chapter. The first relationship that defines our, our other relationships is our trust in Christ. Here we are urged to stay focused. In fact, Paul is saying that more distractions of everyday life come to those who are married. And one of the things that we know about the city of Corinth was that it was a place of sexual freedom. It was known, Corinth was known for its promiscuous lifestyle. So when Paul, himself a single person, writes this letter to the Corinthian church, and he knew that community very well, he realizes that there are particular temptations to living a single life. Things really haven't changed a lot 2,000 years later, have they? Now, by the way, I really have wrestled about what word to use as we talk about singles. Because I've thought about this message a lot. And I don't know if I or if you like the word single because it implies being alone. And that's not something that I really want to communicate. But then I thought of the other words. I don't know if I'm drawn to the word celibate either. Because maybe you feel like it refers to a religious system of withdrawing from society rather than being engaged and connected with society. And then I don't know if I like the word unmarried either because it refers to what a person is not instead of what a person is. So I hope you feel a little bit of the dilemma that I'm experiencing even as I speak about this. And that's why I'm jumping from one word to the next and not really landing on any one of those. But for those of you who are single, perhaps you've heard Christian friends try to bring you comfort um, in being unmarried. And on top of that, I think we start to do it with faulty teachings, faulty Christian teachings. Our Christian subculture is sadly deceived when we make hurtful comments like this. Here's one. As soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring somebody special into your life. As though God's blessings only are earned by our good behavior and how we operate in a good way. Or how about this? Before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. As though God grants marriage as a second kind of blessing to the people who have already made some good steps in their Christian life. Or how about this one? If you really pray for a marriage partner, then God will give you one. Now, I love holding on to every single promise of God. And I know that you and I don't want to miss out on any of God's promises. And if you are single, and if you would like to be married, then ask God about this. Talk with him about this and ask him. God promises always to be with us. 
God promises to give us strength as we lean on him. But God has never given a promise to everybody in scripture that we will get married and live happily ever after. Marriage is not something that God owes us. Because God's not to be tamed. God is not to be told, well, you have to act in a certain way and you have to do this for me. But this mysterious God is good. Oswald Chambers, the great devotional writer, has said, do not look for God to come in a particular way, but look for him. So right now, I'm going to pause for my speaking, and we're going to look to a couple of friends. And first of all, I think Julie's going to come up and share some thoughts, and then right after that, we're going to hear from Carol. Thank you. Morning. Morning. What a personal subject. Um, thank you for having me share with you today. Um, I'm going to break it into three points. It's my experiences, my thoughts, and who I am as an unmarried woman in the faith. Because single, as Pastor Sheldon said, sounds like I'm alone, and I'm really not. And I've got a full life, and I'm happy and Thank you, everybody that said, I want to pray for a husband for you because I don't want you to, because I'm serving Jesus. I'm enjoying myself and I'm living full and I just want to be in a community. That's, that's my statement. And before I start, so thank you for that. So I am Julie. I'm a woman that believes in Jesus. I'm a woman that follows Christ. I'm a woman that wants to be like him. I'm somebody that loves him and wants to serve him. And I am so filled and complete and content with what he's given me to do and yet learning from him every day. And the goodness of God, which is in my life, it, it overwhelms me with the love that he has for me, which is so full and enough. Um, but the experiences I've had... Um, are interesting because I know there's a worldly point of view that an unmarried woman like me is a, a sad person, lonely, needy, sometimes seeking. Um, some may say I'm incomplete, but that's the world standard. And I've experienced like um, a lot of sympathetic comments. Um, oh, you have no husband? Oh, so, so sad. Or somebody saying, uh, have you tried Christian dating apps? Have you tried reaching out to so-and-so? Oh, I know a cousin of a cousin of a cousin. He's a Christian. You can marry him. <sighs> and unfortunately, there have been some experiences as well that I've had. It's um, People don't know. I believe some married couples don't know how to relate to you as a couple because you're single. And relation I'm looking for if I walk into a church it's not for a boyfriend not for a husband not for yours or not for yours but for Jesus um, I'm looking for Christ I'm looking for him the fullness of him um, sometimes I feel and I have experienced exclusion avoidance judgment and also being single a lack of trust because I don't have a husband and I I can't really say that a lack of trust is actually it because I think in order to relate to you, sometimes a couple is easier to relate to a couple but not to a single because what do we have in common? You have no children and you have no husband. Um, 
So that's the experiences. And the last one, which has been a fantastic one, are the dinner invitations. The dinner invitation that turned out to be such awkward attempts to set me up with somebody. Because there's a cousin and there's a friend and there's a person at work and he goes to church and come along to dinner. It's just you, me, and also him that makes me uncomfortable. Then I start to isolate because I want to get to know you. I want community with you. I want community with us and I want us to be in a community in Christ. And if you get to know me, I'm not going to give you my number right now, but if you get to know me as a person, it's the person, it's the relationship I'm looking for. Like the one I have with Christ is what he's called us to do. What he's called us to be is to be together as one and not to look at somebody as a status, a statement or an object. I'm Julie, a follower of Christ in the community of MCBC, wanting to have fellowship with you all, not one or another. And secondly, being unmarried, being unmarried is what I call myself because I'm not lonely, which single ties it to be. Being unmarried is a strange, it's not as strange as culture makes it out to be. My status seems to overshadow the person that I am. And, um, People aren't looking at me as a person that can give um, a quality or value to anything to add to life. Um, but if you get to know a person and build community with them, you know that the truth is what I'm seeking is a relationship Christ-based. Um, I've never really thought to attend church for anything else but looking for Jesus who's calling me in different directions and... Um, but there are many reasons that people have a single life, and Pastor Sheldon has touched on it. But the biggest thing to me is about getting to know somebody in a community is that we're not just alone because of choice or because we're seeking and want to get married. We, we can be alone by the death of a loved one. You couldn't become recently widowed. Um, does that make you isolated from anybody else? Does that mean that you can't be in community? This is where God calls us to reach out to each other, to love each other, and to have fellowship with one another because we need each other. And orphans, widows, I've lost a parent. I might lose another one. You know, one day these things will happen. We won't have the confines of what we're used to, but one day we're going to be a people that may end up by ourselves. So my call is to follow as Jesus does because he loves us and he didn't have any respect of persons or status. He never gave us a status, so we shouldn't do that. The human tendency is to judge because of stereotypes, customs, or prejudices. But Jesus, as I said, he treats people as individuals. He accepts them. He loves them with a compassion. Humility and trust are more at the foundation of community than status or perf perfection. Excuse me. God calls his people to community. So we are community made up of strong, weak, poor, orphans, widows, unmarried people like me, looking for fellowship. Some looking for marriage, but I'm just going to be that unmarried person on the side. Um, there are women like me, so what's Julie all about? Um, what's her contentment? What does she do? Um, what does she do in her spare time? Does she go to work? Does she sleep? Does she eat? Does she read? Does she drink? Does she smoke? What does she do? Um, work for Jesus. I do work for the kingdom. I actually study three times a week, and it's not for me, but it's to the glory of God because he's using me. Because without that, if I was focusing on something else and I ask him to 
have me focus on his work without that I will be focusing on something else that's not Christ and I want to serve him I'm a disciple helping to make disciples learning as I go falling stumbling but learning and walking um that's what I do and why is my contentment in this my contentment is this that Jesus is my heart's desire Pleasing him and serving him is my heart's desire. But I'd also like to do that with spiritual brothers and sisters because I can't do that if I'm excluded, stereotyped, or thought of as an unsafe, not being utilized, even overlooked for positions due to having no husband where I can bring great value to certain places, but I'd never be thought of because of status. We could be much stronger working together and living together. The kind of community that accepts, forgives, encourages, and is able to be vulnerable one to another. A whole togetherness, a family. Um, I've not let the world define me by my status. My freedom is in Christ Jesus alone. As I said, I'm Julie, a woman wanting to become more like Christ, doing his work, and a woman that Christ can work with, a woman that he can teach. And not forgetting my neighbors and loving each other because loving God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind is something I never used to understand. But to ask him to serve him and to put yourself to one side and give your life to him that he can live through you is the best thing that I did. Because I don't live first, he lives first, and he's my first love, not a husband, and I'm happy in who I am. Um, I may have said this already, but I wanted to add this because there's many people that are in a single state looking for someone, but seek the kingdom of God first. Seek his will for you. Don't make a mistake by rushing into something. Seek his word. Seek him and utilize the time that you have right now because the time that you have right now, you may never have it back again. So have this time being a single person or a person seeking, seek God first and let him do the rest because he knows what you're praying for and trust him and have faith in him. My contentment is this. Jesus is my peace. Jesus is my strength. Jesus is my redeemer. He's my guide. He's my friend. He's my protector. He's my healer. I can do nothing that's going to take me away from his love. And I don't know anybody that can love me like the Lord Jesus can. Nobody can, and at the end of the day, I will not forget him or walk away from him, and I try every day to be like him because it's a daily chore. It's not an easy road. It's not an easy task. Whew, that was a mouthful, wasn't it? In a nutshell, if we can just live in community and see somebody as a person, I'd really love that so we could be a strong community praying together and seeing miracles happen. In Jesus' name, thank you. Julie, thank you for sharing um, so much of what you said. I resonate with, and I just want to say ditto. <laughs> now I can sit down, right? Um, yeah, the last couple of sermons have been pretty tough, talking about family, and especially as it relates to uh, to marriage. Six years ago, my marriage of almost 35 years ended, and um, I had been limping along with a broken heart in a difficult and sometimes abusive relationship for a long time. So listening to these marriages and comparing God's desire and my hopes for my marriage and family with the rea- with what was the reality left me feeling like a failure. 
Um, and the negative self-condemning thoughts took over very easily, and they are hard to fight off. During my marriage, I spent a lot of energy just getting through each day. And for a long while, I have felt like a failure. But that is not the end of my story. As I began to put down the burden of my marriage, I was able to notice God's presence again in my life and able to hear his gentle voice. Not that I didn't hear it before, but there was a lot of other noise going on, and it was hard to hear God's voice. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know that verse? It's Romans 8.1. And it reminds me that in Jesus I am not condemned. And in verse 16 of that same chapter, I'm reminded that I am a precious child, an heir of God. This is where my identity is rooted, not in my marital status. Yes, I'm sinful, and yes, I am broken. But God offers me love, forgiveness, grace, and healing, and even opportunities to serve him. Sometimes when I look back over the past six years, especially to those dark and frightening early days, I wonder how I got here, standing right here. Um, No lightning bolts, no aha moments, nothing specific to point to. And yet I find myself over the last few years more and more aware of God's presence and leading in my life and more and more open to the ways and places God wants to use me. Some of those have been challenging and vulnerable places, again, like right here. But God has helped me to step into these with willingness and courage. If there is a lightning bolt, which is actually a little more like a sunrise or a fresh rain, more than anything, it's, it's you, God's people. God has used the love and encouragement and prayers of my family, a few friends, especially my small group, to help me on this healing journey. And today I can say with confidence that I am a precious child of God and I belong in God's family. Thank you. Wow. Well, we've heard the sermon, and i got part two to go with here still. <laughs> we are so enriched, aren't we, just to be able to hear these stories of faith and how God guides people on their journey, our journey, And uh, to think of the beautiful and rich fabric of the family that God has given to us. Um, Before we leave 1 Corinthians 7, and then I want to get to another text this morning. But 1 Corinthians 7, I want to highlight just one more verse, and it's verse 17 in the text. And uh, it's it's where Paul writes these words. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule that I lay down in all the churches. But I want you to listen to how this verse, verse 17, is put in the message. And now... Don't be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. Live 
and obey and love and believe right there. God, not your marital status, defines your life. Wow. That's how Eugene Peterson puts those words from verse 17. God, not your marital status, defines your life. Maybe you know the name Elizabeth Elliot. As a young woman, Elizabeth Elliot, she and her husband were called to serve as missionaries in South America. Her husband, Jim, was brutally killed. It was in Ecuador, along with four other missionaries who were seeking to share the good news of Jesus with an indigenous tribe. Elizabeth was left single to raise her 10-month-old daughter. And then when Elizabeth Elliot wrote a book entitled Loneliness, she wrote it as an older woman. Many decades later, here are the words that she wrote. Having been married to three very different men, all of them fine Christian husbands, I have found that no one of them, or even all three of them together, if I had been a polyandrist, could meet all my needs. The Bible promises that God, not my husband, shall supply all my needs. So Paul writes these words in Philippians 4.19, And my God will meet all your needs through his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Paul writes about a contentment that's independent of the circumstances, and that's what we've been hearing about. Contentment and loneliness can be a part of the human experience for both marrieds and singles. Contentment is something to be sought after. And Paul in his New Testament teaching is convinced that our final contentment is not found in human relationships, but in the one who made us for human, for relationships. Look at the life of Mother Teresa, who lived life as a dedicated celibate. She impacted the world by her love and taught that loneliness and the feeling of being unwanted is the most terrible poverty. Think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was engaged just before he died and was never married. Think of C.S. Lewis, who thought that he would be a lifelong celibate and then was surprised to get married right at the end of his life, just before he died. The world would be a lesser place without these greats. Or think of the Apostle Paul or John the Baptist, and then consider Jesus himself. Jesus chose to live without a wife, but he never lacked community And he was always investing into meaningful relationships. I think two of two people, two people, one of them was my Aunt Kate, who lived a single life all her life. She never lived in the public eye. But what I do know is that I had no other adult relative in my life who took such an interest in me and in my siblings and in my cousins, while my other aunts and uncles were far too busy with their own families, my Aunt Kate would take me to the park and take me mini-golfing. She was ready to play and to laugh with me, to be with me. And it's the same with my wife, Sheila. 
and her unmarried Aunt Jean, who invested into Sheila's life, laughing with her, writing letters to her, loving her, listening to her, and encouraging her in her Christian life. I think it was in part because of the freedom that these two women experienced from their other commitments. These two aunts lived out lives of devotion. I think we've talked about what can we do? What do we need to do? We need to acknowledge that the gift of both marriage and singleness are gifts without viewing singleness as a problem to be solved. We need to acknowledge the different struggles of marriage and singleness. And just as Julie mentioned, how can we set up our group life and our community life so that we are so interconnected with married and unmarried alike? Let's understand that God's picture of family is far bigger than we can imagine. In the Christian life, there's a sense in which no one is truly single, if that means alone or solitary or not connected in community. But in another way, we realize every single person is born single with the, the fact that every person is born unmarried. And singleness, not marriage, is our future. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is asked a question about a man who married a woman and then she died and then she married her sis- then then he married again and he married the sister and then she died and in this hypothetical and exaggerated story it happened seven times in the end who is he going to be married to and then think of Jesus words in Matthew 22:30 at the resurrection people will neither marry nor be given in marriage They will be like the angels in heaven. I want you to feel the weight of this. Marriage is not the end goal. And it's not that God is going to take away gifts from us or be really mean to us in heaven because there is going to be no marriage. Because he is preparing us for something more where we will all learn to love, not just in an imperfect way, But in fullness, he is renewing us from glory to glory. Verses like these keep us from making an idol out of marriage, out of worshiping it, or trying to make it something divine. Revelation 19. Let's move there and let's take a few moments just to ponder this passage at the end. Maybe you're thinking... Revelation 19, it talks about a wedding. And why should we be talking about a wedding in a sermon that's supposed to be addressing and thinking about singleness? For the wedding of the Lamb has come. Let's look a little more closely at this passage. First, it's here in Revelation 19, the only place in the New Testament that the word hallelujah is used. Four times. Four times in this chapter, the triumphant staccato note of praise is shouted out. The word hallelujah literally means you praise God. The Hebrew word hallelujah means you praise, 
And Yah is a shortened version of Yahweh, or God. Hallelujah. You praise God. I think that the disciple John has very carefully chosen this exuberant talk about the wedding. It's a song of triumph. John's description of the celebration, the glitzy world of Babylon has been overthrown. And even with all the troubles of the world, conflict among people, and nations that flex their muscles of military might, um, we're watching this again, aren't we? Once again on our TVs, just as we are on the screens, as we pray for our troubled world. The nations flex their muscles, and then what happens? God has become king at last. And all of creation is invited into this praise. Verse 5 says, praise our God, all you servants of the Lord. And verse 6, we read, hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. And for those of you who love Handel's Messiah, you might be hearing those words from Revelation 19.6. For the Lord God, omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah. Two times in this passage of scripture, John writes about the wedding of the Lamb. Read through the book of Revelation. You know that Jesus is described in so many ways. But in John's language, right now, we are participating in the wedding of the Lamb. And that Greek word, Lamb, is not just Lamb, But it's the diminutive version. It's the wedding of the little lamb. Why does John not use the phrase, the wedding of the king? Or the wedding of the lion? Or the wedding of the almighty God? Does he do this to describe God's tenderness? His patience with us? His gentleness with us. The Lamb sacrifices Himself for us. And this is the Jesus who pursues us with His love, not with a move of power and of force, but we are invited into this loving and tender relationship, this this wedding with the Lamb. And the biblical writers use so many images to talk about our relationship with God. God's our shepherd, we are the sheep. God is our father, we are the beloved children. But here in Revelation 19, this climactic passage, our relationship with God is a marriage. The only wedding that is anticipated in heaven is this one. Christ and the church, the closest and most intimate relationship of all in life. That's why even in the very best of marriages, it cannot complete you like Christ completes you. Today here in the church, we look at those who are married, and we say this, through your act of marriage, we see something so beautiful. Through your act of marriage, we see that you are showing through your life that Jesus loves the church and he has given his life for the church. That's the picture 
and the image of marriage. And then we can look at those who are single, and then we can see this other image of God's love. All of our fulfillment is found in God. And one day, there will be a marriage that we are still waiting for, the people of God with himself. In our teaching on marriage and parenting, we can't miss out on the real plot of the story of Scripture. Our end goal is the marriage of our souls with God. In the book of Hosea, God tells his people, I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. And Paul writes so majestically about marriage in Ephesians 5. As he's writing so majestically about marriage in Ephesians 5, and then in a strange way, his thinking just flips. And then he affirms, this is a profound mystery. But really, I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so now, regardless of whether you are single or married, do you love Jesus? When I meet with couples for pre-marriage preparation, I love asking them the question, do you love each other? And I often find myself in a holy place where they declare just their delight and their joy of being with each other, their commitment and their, their readiness to just say, of course, yes, I love you. And to hear them share that love to each other is a beautiful thing. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Let us encourage one another with these words. Does your heart soar to think of this wedding? Jesus once asked Peter, do you love me? And so may I ask you now, do you love Jesus? For a loveless marriage is a contradiction of terms. Jesus is the one who declares, you belong. There is a place for you around the table. And nothing and no one can take that away from you. And as we wait for the day of that great wedding feast, may we now offer here in our church a place for everyone in anticipation of everything that is to come. Friends, let's join together in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, thank you for these moments of worship today. And we long for all of our contentment to be found in you. Would you please give strength today to those who walk a lonely path? And we thank you for our church and that you are calling us to a place in God's family. And today, O oh Lord, we want to say hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns forever and ever, and we thank you for this promise and this incredible anticipation of the wedding of the Lamb. 
Amen. Amen.